Hello and welcome. You're back for another round. You find yourself at the Hurt Take. I am your host, Reese Dobgen. Oh, baby. The UFC 217. The UFC 217 is this weekend. Big time card. This one's this one's been in the making for some time since all the way back in what March I guess when they announced the headliner I, well they didn't announce the headliner for this particular card but they announced the fight that would become the headliner for this George Saint Pierre's return to the octagon to fight the middleweight champ of the world Michael Bisbing it's a bit of a blast from the past Michael Bisbing of course has been around for a long time. I believe he has the records for most wins in the UFC, something you never thought would happen back when Michael Bisbing was, you know, running his mouth in the tough house. But here it is. This is a big old card. Gotta admit, I'm gonna, kind of excited. I am pretty excited for this. All right, so we're gonna go over this. This is a huge card, UFC 217. They're kind of closing the year out on a big one. They're supposed to have another one, I think, December 30th. Maybe to close out the year with another big show. But this this, this is this is kind of the big one. This is really the big marquee loaded card. We got three title fights. We got the best female fighter on the planet. We got a matchup of top five welterweights. We've got two legends of the sport going at it. And we have arguably... The number one and the number two best fighters in their division across the board. Two guys who could be considered pound-for-pound fighters going at it for the bantamweight title. So let's get right into it, alright? You've got, at the top, George St. Pierre returning to fight Michael Bisping for the middleweight title. You've got Joanna Yinjacek, the strawweight women's champion against Rose Namajunas, Thug Rose. You've got Cody Garbrandt versus TJ Dillashaw for the men's bantamweight title. You've got Steven Thompson versus Jorge Masvidal. you got Johnny Hendricks versus Paolo Borrechina. you got James Vick versus Joe Duffy. I mean, those are some pretty sick fights. Now, before we get into the real meat of the thing, though, Let's get a few of them. Let's get a few out of the way. Some quick hitters. Some quick hitters. Things you need to know. All right. Johnny Hendricks. Big rig. This may very well be his final fight in the UFC, depending how it goes. First of all, we haven't made it to the weigh-ins, so there's the chance he could miss weight again, which would not be a surprise. And they've given him Paolo Boricina, who look who has looked like an absolute killer so far. He looks like a monster. He's just been, he, he's been tearing through guys. And he's big. And Hendricks is small for that division. You know, the UFC, I'm sure, would love nothing more than to have a good-looking Brazilian boy, the next Vitor, if some people have called him, to win this one, okay? We very may well be watching Big Rig's bloated legacy Come to an end without dessert. hey Alright, James Vick versus Joe Duffy. This is a really good fight. This is definitely going to be a, a crowd-pleasing fight. 
Duffy has, I don't know, he's yet to grab the stardom that seemingly has been at his fingertips since his UFC debut. You know, his reputation as the only guy to beat Conor McGregor has a much nicer ring to it than the first guy to beat Conor McGregor, which is kind of what it's become since McGregor's lost to, to Nate Diaz. You know, so Duffy hasn't really been able to, was never really able to capitalize on that. He was never really able to capitalize. He was never really to get the rub from Conor McGregor, the biggest star in the sport. That said, Duffy is super fun to watch. He's very much fitting the trend uh, over the last few years within the sport. Um, the metagame, guys with exceptional feel for striking distance and exceptional combination boxing. Uh, he's got buttery hands, man, and he looks real, real good. Vic is a perennially overlooked guy, 7-1 in the UFC. Hey, this could be a nice way for him to get the rub from somebody with a bigger name. So, should be a good fight. Looking forward to it. All right. Now that we got those two kind of smaller ones out of the way, I wanted to talk about Stephen Thompson and Jorge Masvidal, but just don't got the time. That'll be an awesome fight. An amazing stylistic matchup. Those two guys are so, so interesting. You know, with the win, Masvidal very well could be lining himself up for a title shot. Uh, Stephen Thompson, after his two against Woodley, he'll need he'll need the chosen one to lose the belt before he gets another shot. But either way, those are my two cents. That's all I can put into that one. We're going to start at the top with George Rush St. Pierre, the pride of Canada, the pride of Quebec returning after a four-year hiatus to face Michael Bisping for the middleweight title. Well, this is the fight no one wanted to see at middleweight when it was announced. And now, it's kind of a fight that makes sense. You know, Robert Whitaker, the interim champion, he's hurt. Jacare Souza and uh, Yoel Romero have since lost since this fight was announced. And Luke Rockhold only just recently returned after bickering with the UFC about his, about his contract. All of those guys... We're lined up in front of GSP and created the initial backlash about this fight being booked. And now, with all those guys out of the way, this fight kind of makes sense. Now, what's most interesting about this fight to me is the narrative. The narrative that, that GSP's retirement, we're seeing now that maybe the fans who saw him retire, the fans that followed his rise are not the fans who largely are booing the sport, who are holding up the sport now, who are buying the pay-per-views. You know, some of those people may have left the sport altogether or are among the hardcore base now, but, you know, G GSP's retirement, his career straddled two eras, okay? He was at the end of one era where the big names were still framed within the sport, what they could do in the sport, and, and how exciting they were. The Anderson Silvas, George St. Pierre, the Brock Lesners. The style of fighting was an evolved version of the of the styles make fights rhetoric that, you know, where one dude was great at wrestling, but he also had a stinging jab, like GSP, and that made him a world beater. You know, he added a few other exceptional skills, and that was, like, the best fighter on the planet. Now... GSP is returning to a whole new era of the sport. 
there is no such thing anymore as a Styles make fights. You very rarely have that kind of a fighter like a Damian Maya who is so exceptional at one thing that that's a weapon. Now, guys, literally, it's not that they need to know how to do all things anymore. All things have become one thing. And now it's about the more subtle nuances and how they apply their striking, how they uh, use their kicks, their punches, and mold it together with their grappling. Guys can do everything now. And GSP is returning to that era, an era which he wasn't part of the development of. And what's more, the big names of this era are framed by their personalities, no longer just about what they can do in the sport. You know, Ronda Rousey is a great example now that she's gone, but the Conor McGregor's, the John Joneses, the Joanna and Jacek's, they're kind of these bigger personalities in addition to being great in the cage. So the question is, is GSP coming back at the right moment? You know, he was talking about the stock market stuff. Maybe he's miscalculated. Apparently UFC 217 isn't selling that well, and that definitely has to be attributed to GSP, who at one time was one of their pay-per-view kings. So is GSP going to be like the T-Rex in Jurassic Park? Is he going to be brought back from the past to rule again, or will he just show why his type went extinct? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Bisbing, for his part, has largely kind of gone for the easy stuff, to promote this fight, I found, you know, GSP is rusty. GSP was boring. Uh, GSP couldn't box. GSP isn't very big. Bitch, bitch, bitch. You know, throwing a few curse words there. Uh, you know, he says he's going to retire. Then he says he won't. You could fool me into thinking that that maybe everything he's been saying has been in an effort to make people care. Maybe he kind of knew all along that this would be a bit of a rough sell. He saw Maybe he saw the tea leaves and he's just been doing his best. I don't know, but I haven't found his stuff to be particularly... Um, I haven't found the lead up to, to this to be particularly... Uh, satisfying, I guess would be the word. I don't know. Now, as for the fight itself, a lot has been made about the size difference. And I think there is a size, but it's height. It's, it's, it's height. And, and the weight will be a bit of a difference, but, you know, size only matters in the sense that, that one guy can be bigger and hence stronger. You know, we've seen guys who are slightly undersized who use quickness and speed to their advantage because they can negate the strength difference too. They can get in with a bigger guy and go and go muscle for muscle and hence their speed and their quickness becomes an advantage. I think in this fight GSP is probably going to be the stronger fighter. He's always he was always exceptionally strong at welterweight. Uh part of that was, you know, he was bigger and and his size played that advantage, but he was still that much stronger than a lot of guys. Uh, I think he can outgrapple Bisbing. And in some context, I think he can strike successfully with Bisbing. But that's only if the striking exchanges are kind of limited, if they're short, uh, if, if, you know, if the striking exchanges start to become extended, if they go three or four punches deep in each exchange, GSP is going to get carved up. He's going to get carved up. Bisbing is a fantastic combination fighter. Um, he's got a lot of layers 
to his striking. And if it if they start to have that kind of a fight where the striking exchanges are very extended, it'll progress pretty rapidly until GSP is overwhelmed by it. I just don't see how Bisbing does that. GSP has always been an exceptional athlete, whereas Bisping is not. I don't think that GSP is going to get caught in those positions athletically. I think uh, GSP, you know, he got stuck against a guy like Johnny Hendricks because Hendricks was eating boar meat laced with something USADA tests for and was stinging him with he, these huge concussive punches. Bisping doesn't have that kind of power. He relies on volume and overwhelming guys. So in this case, I don't think GSP is going to get stuck uh, gonna get stuck, you know, gonna stick around for Bisbing to work longer extended combinations. And um, I don't think he, he'll get stuck there because of heavy shots. So I think that GSP is gonna, I think he's gonna win it. I think he's, I think he's probably gonna grind it out as the fight progresses and, and he's gonna hold his own on the feet early. Um, but hey, who knows? I mean, this is gonna be a very interesting fight to watch. Co-headlining the fight, uh, the card, is Joanna and Jacek versus Rose Nami Yunus for the women's straw weight title. This is this is going to be a very interesting fight to watch as well for kind of a different reason. Now, the narrative for this fight is kind of the, the greatest women's MMA fighter arguably ever fighting one of its most talented combatants you know rose nami Yunus has been on the radar ever since her second professional fight you know she 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 beat katarina catrone with a flying arm bar back in 2013 check out that highlight if you can it's incredible you just don't see that kind of thing so she's been on everybody's radar ever since then this talent that you know we've never seen somebody like that her athleticism is unreal but you know, and, and then you have Yin Jacek, who kind of put the whole sport on notice when she laid an absolute beating on Carla Esparza to win the strawweight title. So that's kind of the narrative. You've got no, Rose Namajunas, who's sort of, everyone's known about her for, for years within this sport, to Yin Jacek, who is just an absolute dominant champion. You know, Yin Jacek now, she's going for her sixth consecutive title defense, which would uh, tie a, a women's UFC record with Ronda Rousey. Uh, <laughs> Yin Jacek holds the record for the most strikes in a title fight, man or woman. Bra and she broke her own record to do it. She broke the record and then she broke her own record. And she, she continues to fight at that pace. She's ridiculous. She throws, you know, around 200 fight, uh, strikes a fight. I mean, that, that is an absolute insane pace. She just brings so much at you. She punctuates every combination with like a snappy leg kick. So she gets her opponents thinking about everything, and then they just, they wilt. She breaks people. She really just overwhelms and breaks her opponents. She fights mean, and she talks mean. Whereas with Rose Namajunas, 
it's not nearly as definitive of that. Like with Jean Jacek, it's all of those things. That's who she is. She's proven this over and over and over again. With Nami Yunus, it's almost like it depends on how you want to look at her path to the title. There's kind of a couple ways. One way is she's riding this hype train, but in truth has been just very inconsistent. Okay, she's only coming off of one win to get this title fight. She lost one uh, to Karolina Kovalkiewicz. Then she beat Michelle Waterson to get this title shot. So she's not exactly soaring into this title shot. She was the favorite on tough, but lost in the finale to Carla Esparza. She was, you know, she was, as I mentioned before, her loss to Kovalkiewicz came as she was riding a three-fight win streak, seemingly living up to her potential, and then hitting that wall that was Kovalkiewicz. So a lot of inconsistency in her career. So that's one side to the narrative you can look at it. But the other way you can look at it is she's essentially forced her way to this spot. She's, she's overcome youth with sheer dynamism. Her inexperience has flashed in her losses, but she's come back from her losses with exceptional performances. You know, she came back from her loss to Esparza with that three-fight win streak and looked pretty exceptional doing it. Uh, she, you know, she showed her inexperience against Kovalkiewicz, but bounced back with a dominant win over Michelle Waterson. You could look at this as this is the growth of an extremely talented fighter finding her way. She's going to be at the top of this division for a while, more than likely. And maybe this is the moment she achieves that. The way I see it is more the first, okay? To me, she should have been the first champion. She should have beat Carla Esparza if she was as if she was as good as we all hope she could be. She would have won that fight to me. I think Yun Jacek would have beaten her for the belt when Yun Jacek ended up winning it from Esparza. If you had replaced Nami Yunus uh, in that fight, if you had taken out Esparza and put in Nami Yunus, I think Yun Jacek would have won it. But Nami Yunus would then have worked her way back to this spot she finds herself in now anyways and never dropped that fight to Kovalkiewicz. But she hasn't. She lost to Esparza. She lost to Kovalkiewicz. She has been very inconsistent. And so I have my doubts that she's going to just suddenly have the performance of her life against one of the most dominant champions we've ever seen in the sport. You know, I just... Namunas physically and stylistically has many things in common with Ian Jacek, but, you know, Ian Jacek cruised against Karolina Karolkiewicz and... Nami Yunus struggled mightily, even in strength. In the strength, you know, Nami Yunus was able to, w was, was kind of pushed around a bit by Kovalkiewicz. Yunjajic did not let Kovalkiewicz push her around. Not an inch, really. So what, what's, she gonna, what's Nami Yunus going to do against Yunjajic? Is she going to get her into the clinch? No way. Yunjajic is a world-class clinch fighter. Nami Yunus is not the takedown artist of uh, Jessica Andraj or Claudia Gedalia, and both of them struggled mightily to take down Yinjajek. Nam Yunus won't be able to pressure Yinjajek, who can stick and move as well as anyone. And Nam Yunus has never knocked anyone out. You know, she, ha she throws half as many strikes, and she gets hit about as often as she doesn't get hit. So I just don't see how 
I just don't see how she's gonna win this fight. I I I just don't see it. Um, the big thing to me is really it, it's not the outcome. It's it's what is Yunjaechek gonna do after? If she ties Rousey's record, I think likely she'll break it. She'll go. She'll try and break it, and then she'll probably jump up and try and win the one twenty five belt once it's made its debut. We'll see. I would love to see that. I think that would be very exciting. If there's someone who could jump up and win two belts, you know, Yunjaechek's someone I would really support going about and doing it. The third title fight on this card is Cody Garbrandt versus TJ Dillashaw. Woo! This is the grudge match on the card. You got to have a grudge match on the card. Every card has to have two people to just hate each other. This is a good old-fashioned grudge match, baby. The UFC thought this is such a grudge match that the UFC even tried to use it to keep people watching The Ultimate Fighter. It almost worked. It almost worked. I almost watched, and then I remembered, oh, right, it's The Ultimate Fighter, and I can just read about Cody grabbing TJ's throat on the internet the next day. I don't even need to watch it. So now in the lead up to this fight, TJ has really been made to look like a selfish person, a selfish person, a loose cannon in the gym. Uh, his former team alpha male teammates have really taken turns throwing dirt on him. You know, unfortunately for Dillashaw, that ship, that reputation, he's now that that ship has sailed. That's who he is in the eyes of of fans. That's who he is. It was like when John Jones earned that label of being fake. You know, that just, it would never escape him. Uh, Dillashaw is now only seen as being kind of a snake in the grass. And I don't know what he can do <laughs> to, to, to fix that. Uh, unfortunately, that's kind of who he is. And, and Garbrandt's really used it against him. The only, and the thing about that is it's actually been really disappointing for me because I don't feel like Garbrandt's come out of the lead up to this thing looking better. You know, Dillashaw's looked worse, but Garbrandt hasn't looked better as a result of it. You know, he hasn't necessarily looked worse, because if TJ looks worse, how can Garbrandt really look worse? I mean, it would just be... I If both of them came out of the lead-up of this thing looking like idiots, that would be amazing. But Garbrandt hasn't looked better. You know, all the stuff uh, with Garbrandt earlier in his crew with that, his, that young cancer patient, you know, when he was making his ascension, all that, all those elements, all that... Was just It felt like we were watching someone really develop into being a star. Like there was something there. That element has all taken a backseat to just being this stereotypical tough guy who loses his temper. And, you know, we saw it in the lead up to the Dominic Cruz fight. And then we forgot about it instantly because of how dynamic and amazing he looked and the show he put on in the, in the cage. And that's the thing about Garbrandt is that I think he can be a star, but I think he can be a star because of what he does in the cage. And I don't mean winning fights necessarily. I mean putting on a show. If he can really bring that showmanship, he can become a star. You know, maybe he won't sound great. Maybe he won't say the right things outside the cage, but he has the chance to be the kind of entertainer in the cage of like a Roy Jones Jr. You know, or for an MMA comparison, he could be like a Diaz brother who's actually championship caliber. He puts on a show and he wins fights. Now, I'm super, super hyped to see this fight. 
Um, it's my the most exciting fight on the card for me because I think that both these guys, like I said, they're pound for pound. Each of them could be a pound for pound top 15 guy, really. In any other division, TJ Dillashaw would be a two or three time title defender, but he's been saddled in the division with Dominic Cruz and Cody Garbrandt. I mean, that's a scary top three. And we'll see what happens. A loss for Dillashaw, I think, hurts a lot more than a loss for Garbrandt. But a win for either guy could be a potential windfall because they could get a marquee matchup against Demetrius Johnson. I mean, that would be... That's a fight that everyone seemed to want to see when the, when the rumor was TJ versus Demetrius Johnson. But then again, I doubt it. I doubt it. I, I don't think any... <laughs> No one wants to watch the small guys. They've, we've all, everyone's had their opinion heard now. Nobody wants to watch the small guys. So even if one of these guys wins and they fight DJ, no one will care. Because apparently, that's it. The UFC doesn't market them because no one cares. Sure. Bullshit. If you market them right, the fans will follow. And this is a good way. This would be a good fight to market. DJ versus either one of these guys. All right, moving down the card, uh, some fights flying on a fight to f- flying under the radar. Uh, I'm just going to quickly throw it out there. Alexei Olenek versus Curtis Blades. Olenek has been around for, I didn't even realize this guy has fought like over 60 times in MMA, which is insane. And Curtis Blades is one of the more promising fighters in the heavyweight division in a division that just does not seem to have a lot of them. Uh, so that's a fight to pay attention for on the undercard. Uh, I got Curtis Blades in that. I'm hoping that he can keep ascending. It would be nice to, you know, have another guy at heavyweight to really watch out for. And now, I wasn't going to talk about this. I wasn't going to do a Q rating this week. And then I decided, you know, screw it. Because Colby Covington, Dungon opened up his mouth and I said to myself, yes, yes, I have to do a Q rating for this. But I'm going to expand on it. So Colby Covington, this weekend, beat Damian Maya. He talked a lot of trash. He called the Brazilian fans filthy animals. He said Brazil was a dump. He said a lot more than that. Uh, and then when he issued an apology on Twitter, he doubled down and and essentially said that they were all filthy animals again. Um I mean, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Maybe not the smartest thing to offend an entire country while you're in that country. Uh, But it got people talking. It got people really interested. But what I found really interesting about it is that what we've seen in, in the last few years is the trend of fighters trying to McGregor themselves. The thing is, by talking trash, by being brash, outspoken, saying what's on their mind, and and, and hoping that the, that sells them. But here's the thing is, McGregor is at an advantage in two regards. One, he's born with natural power and has the ability to use it. So when he talks about knocking people out, when he talks trash, he can back it up the way he said it. He doesn't have to say, I'll tap you out, I'll break your arm. He says, I'll put you to sleep. Because that's what he's going to try and do. And that's what he's very, very good at. And two, McGregor can say that better than anybody. And he's funny. 
Colby Covington, by all regards, isn't a bad talker. It's not like he sounds... It's not like he stumbles over his words. It's not like some of the things he says aren't very interesting. He says a lot of interesting, interesting kind of funny stuff. But unlike McGregor, he's got a problem with the other half of the equation. Speci the what he is saying he's going to do. You know, he talked a massive amount of trash about how Maya is a bum and a loser. And then, and then he comes out and looks kind of sloppy. His striking ain't great. He largely doesn't get the better of Maya through the first round and a half or so. So he looks like he's not really putting his money where his mouth is. Because the problem is expectation. McGregor says the, you know, sets the expectation of a knockout, a beatdown. I'm going to knock him out within a round. Then he meets those expectations. Because it's not hard for him. He's got knockout natural power. If he says he's going to go try and knock someone out, that's likely how he's going to finish the fight. Covington, meanwhile, says he's going to put Maya to rest, put him to sleep, and take out Maya in impressive fashion. You know, he made it sound like he was going to put a beat down on Maya, but he didn't. But he didn't, because that was never how he was going to win that fight. And he should have known that. He shouldn't have opened his mouth and said that's what he was going to do, because he should have known that's not how he was going to win that fight. With his skill set, he was never going to knock Damian Maya out. That's not his specialty. But of course, he'd be nuts to grapple with Maya when they're both fresh. So the best bet and the way he fought the fight was to tire Maya out. We've seen what happens when Maya gets tired. Maya gets tired and dies for takedowns like a mad person. So Covington came out. He threw some volume at him. He marched him down. He stalked in his face. He stayed in his face. He threw lots of volume. It was ugly. It was unrefined. He fell off balance often. He missed a lot, but he forced Maya to tire out. So if Maya, if Covington had, had said that over and over and over, Maya is old. Maya will tire. I'm going to throw more than him. I don't care if it's ugly. I've got a better gas tank. I'm going to tire him out, and he'll dive for takedowns. You'll see he'll dive. He'll dive like he's jumping in the ocean. Then I'm going to beat his ass down in the third round in his home country. If Covington had said that, it would have been prophetic. He would have been calling the fight. The commentators would have said, this is what Covington said he was going to do. You know, it's not as exciting as a knockout, but it certainly isn't a case of not meeting expectations. Covington said he'd do something, and he didn't do it, and looked kind of bad not doing it. But yo, his mic work was fire. That That's, that's another thing, though, he doesn't have that Mac does. The ability to insult Brazilians and get away with it with the UFC, because apparently they're looking into his comments. Like, like he's so offensive. Like, oh, God, don't get me started on that one. McGregor can do it. No big deal. He sells pay-per-views. I guess that's the way it should be, but still. So all that to say, Q rating, Colby Covington, steady, steady. You got some points for the mic work. You lost some points for not setting the right expectations. All right, I want to thank you for joining me. For this episode of The Hurt Take, the podcast for the fans, by the fans. Ah, 
I'm sorry, I screwed up. The MMA podcast for the fans, by the fans. I hope to have you back next week for another round where we can recap some hopefully sick UFC 217 action. I have been your host, Reese Dobigan. 